Well, let me ask you this question uh, to begin. Um, how many of you out there are book lovers, like to read books? We're kind of a bookish congregation. If, you're not, if you didn't raise your hand, it's okay. You can, like, it's an audible, you like audible books? I read, I read audible books. Is that technically a thing? You listen to them? Um, so let me ask this question. What makes for a good story? What makes for a good story if you read books? And, and, and there's a lot of ways you can answer that, but every author or novelist or bookish book reader person will know or will say that the first sentence of a book, its opening, as Plato said somewhere, is one of the most important parts. It's how a story begins that really sets the, the stage for and helps the reader decide if they're going to continue reading the book or not. <clears throat> so think of some of your favorite stories, how they begin. For example, all happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Some of you know that story. Um, Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four, Privet Drive. I don't even need to say anymore. You're all right there in Hogwarts, right? Mr. Bil- when Bilbo Baggins of Baggins announced that he would shortly be celebrating his 11th birthday, a party of special magnificence, there was much talk and excitement in Hobbiton. There was a boy once, uh, once a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. Takes you to your childhood. Stories, if they're to be memorable and impactful and enduring and, and really life-shaping, they have to begin well. So as you know, there's four Gospels. <clears throat> so four beginnings to the story of Jesus. There's Mark's very pithy beginning, if you read it sometime, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. There's John's eloquent one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Our middle school students this morning are, are studying that and its connection to Genesis. And then there's Luke and Matthews. <laughs> we heard Matthews. Very confusing beginnings, long lists of names, generations, which I would say, when you, if you've read them, as a modern reader, your eyes begin to glaze over, and you're like saying, can we please get to some action? This is really boring. Have you ever had that experience? This is not a way to begin a story, is what I'll say. I mean, Matthew really needed a, an editor. Um, <clears throat> So why is he doing this? And that's a great question. That's going to be our question for the morning as we reflect on the aspects of Jesus' Jesus genealogy that I believe really reveal to us God's character and have the capacity to shape our lives, okay? So we're going to look at three things about God, about us in this beginning to the story. The first 17 verses of, of Matthew, as we move into 2019, we're going to look at how God takes his time. We're going to look at how God breaks into history and we're going to look at how God smashes all the superficial barriers that we erect, okay? Um, so first, God takes his time. This is in verse 1 and verse 17. So in the very beginning of this, there, it says this. There are, these are the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Then it goes on. And right away, this reminds us, if you are a careful reader, that, uh, that Christ was promised for hundreds and hundreds of years. So the son of David. God came to David at one point, and he said, I'm going to put one of your descendants on the throne. And, I, and he will reign forever, says this to David. He comes to Abraham earlier in Genesis 15. He says, Abraham, come out of your tent. It's nighttime. Look at the stars. Can you number them? Sort of a rhetorical question. Of course you can't. So shall your offspring be, right? You've all heard this. So if you look at the end of the genealogy, at verse 17, it says, though, that there were 14 generations from Abraham to David. And then 14 more from David to Babylon, which is an exile. And then 14 more to Christ's birth. And I'm not much of a mathematician, but I can add 14 plus 14 plus 14. That's a long time. 
scholars say it's around 2,000 years. Um, generations were a little bit longer back then. So our country is about 240 years old. I can count back maybe two or three generations in my family. And here Matthew's going back 42 generations. That, mind-blowing when you think about it. With names, you know. And, and so it, and it wasn't for about 2,000 years after, this is the reason Matthew does this, that after Abraham, where Mary sings her song, the Magnificat, um, where she's saying, wow, this promise is fulfilled today. 2,000 years before God makes this promise. 500 years in between, <laughs> nothing happens. There's no prophets, no kings, there's silence. Hundreds of years, there's, prophets have been coming in the Old Testament. If you read the end of the Old Testament, all these little prophet, prophetic books, they're saying things like, things look bad today. Things, don't lose heart though. And this is the purpose of the prophets. God is sending a new and true king. He's going to come. Things look bad today, but God's going to do all the things God promised someday. And then 500 years of silence, like not a single prophet. So no promises, no prophets. And it looks like God has given up on Israel. I mean, for 500 years, that's twice as long as our country has been. I mean, just think of that right now where you're sitting. 500 years of silence. It seems like God forgets Israel. And then on the first page of the New Testament, which is the, the beginning of the gospel, the new, the new thing, <laughs> Abraham begat Isaac. You know, it's like, what? You know, is this how you, this is not, these are not the words that roll off my pen if I'm writing. I'm like, hey, God's here, you know? And there's all these begats. So here's the point. <clears throat> the reason that these names are carefully preserved for generations, the first thing that this genealogy is teaching us today, 2019, is that you cannot judge God by your calendar. You can't do it. You've got a calendar, a new calendar. It's on January 6th today, in case you're not sure what day it is. You cannot judge God by your calendar. It won't work. Don't try. By the measurements of your memory, by the accuracy of of time, like, don't do it. The first thing we're taught is that God may appear to be working very, very slow. He works very, very slow, but he never forgets his promises. 2,000 years God makes his promise, and he doesn't forget. He's, he seems to be forgetting his promises, but when his promises come true, because they do, it always bursts the banks of your expectations and everything you imagined. That's kind of the point of this story. So God seems to forget, but he never forgets his promises. And he's gonna, he comes through in ways that you'd, you'd never imagine. Um, that's the meaning of, and the reason for this genealogy and the first point. And why I think that's important for us to reflect on here early in January why I picked this. It's a lot of us, I think, and I, I'm, I'm in the boat with you here, a lot of times we're just fighting with the fact that a lot of God's promises, when we hear those, just don't, they seem absent and distant. Like, they're not coming true. We've heard that God promises to bless us. We've heard that God promises to give us the desires of our hearts. We've heard that God promises us a future and a hope. I mean, Jeremiah talks about that in Jeremiah 29, Right? They give us everything we need. We just need to ask, and we'll get everything we need, ask more, more than we can imagine. We hear those things, and they're nothing short of saccharine. Like, ugh, really? Please don't say that anymore, Jack. Um, because they don't line up with your experience. You're not experiencing blessing, you know? Your, your desires are unmet. Your future seems murky. You've asked, you've asked, you've asked, you've asked, and it seems like nobody's listening. Like, God is gone. Are you with me? <laughs> Just wondering if God's forgotten you and your family and your need and your hopes and your desires. 
So the genealogy is here to teach you that on the sixth day of January 2019, what God's saying, I think, to you and to me, is that the mills of God grind slow, but they grind fine. That God may, may seem to have forgotten to you, but you cannot judge God by your calendar. God is working, and he's in the process of bringing to bear on your life everything that he promised. Everything. So you read your Bible, you see promise upon promise upon promise upon generation, upon generation, upon generation. For people who had every reason to believe, these people lived in exile and bondage and slavery. I mean, think of their story, right? Israel. They had every reason to think that God forgot them, and yet Hebrews 11 tells us it's their audacious belief in God's promise that they're commended for. It's not, it's not anything else. It's just audacious belief. Believing Abraham, even though he didn't know where he was going, had no idea. Not seeing evidence of the promise in his own life, just living into belief. That's the first thing about this genealogy. The point is, it, is God is working out his, pro- his promises in your life. Just be patient. He's slow. You just need to rest <laughs> and trust that God's faithful and he will fulfill. Okay? Here's the second thing that God breaks into history, and this is verse 12. So there's a lot of little hyperlinks to history here. <clears throat> Verse 12 is one of them. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of... Sh- <laughs> Good job, Andrew. Shalathiel. Shalathiel, the father of Zerubbabel. I don't know much about Jeconiah, Shalathiel, and Zerubbabel. I mean, I did look up a Wikipedia article about a couple of them, but um, I do know a few things about exile. And I talked about this in, in Advent. It's this event that happened in... 587 BC, where Israel is carried off to Babylon from the land that was promised to them, and Israel's destroyed. I mean, the wall is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. They believe that God actually lived in the temple, so in a a way that's different than this. You leave here, this space is just empty until you come back. That space, man, was very, very sacred, and there were sacred things in it. only the priests could go in those sacred places, destroyed, completely destroyed. And that represents their identity as people of God. And so they're carried off. And and so the note here about exile, that after the exile to Babylon, in verse 12, is is so foundational and fundamental to our belief because it says that the gospel's beginning teaches us that God has done something in history. So he he works slowly, but he also has done something in history. After 70 years... If you read Jeremiah, after 70 years, God brought his people back from exile. And they restored, and this is Nehemiah and Ezra, they restored the wall and the temple and they did all these things. And Zerubbabel, (laughs) there, is the guy who leads the first Jews, 42,000 of them, back to restore what's ruined. He's a leader. That's the reason Matthew doesn't begin in verse 18. It's the reason he has to include verse 1 and verse 12. He doesn't begin the story with once upon a time... There's this beautiful baby, and he was born in a manger. He doesn't do that because he wants us to be sure you know this is not a fiction. You didn't make this up. This isn't a fairy tale. This is reality. God puts Jesus in history. This was a historical, these were historical events. And so Christianity is declaring to us that God has done something in history. It's a historical faith. He broke in, and certain historical events happened. And those events have changed the direction, literally divided time, and and changed the trajectory of our lives. So Jesus happened. That's a simple way of saying it. Which has a couple of implications for our lives. Number one, that 
it, Jesus happened gives us a sense of proportion. Uh, so these events very often appear, or are, the events of our lives often appear out of proportion. Like we, they're really, we think they're bigger than they are. We're the proverbial fish in the water, right? We have no idea. We have no perspective on what's happening today because we're living it and we're so close to it. We lack perspective. And so this genealogy, with all its history, it is like a densely packed Wikipedia article with all these hyperlinks, all sorts of ways to get into this fact that God worked in history. He intervened. He, I'm glad you liked that because that was funny, wasn't it? Yeah, so he showed up. You can tell I spend time on Wikipedia. I mean, that's where I do a lot of my homework. So, you know, can't be that bad. <laughs> Actually, uh, Adam, I saw you this morning, Adam Hestad. No, not Adam Hestad, the other Adam, Adam Runyon's. There's a couple Adams here. A couple years ago, he gave me um, this, I couldn't get it off my wall because I bolted it on there, but this timeline, which presents history in a sort of, you have to come down to my office right below us, but it presents history in this graphic way, and I look at it sometimes when I'm at my desk, and that helps me because while I'm sitting there brooding over the day's news and my week's sermon and whatever's happening, I see that empires have risen and fallen. Um, terrible events have happened and great events have happened. Um, as a church leader, I'm reminded that councils have gathered and scattered, that denominations have come and gone, uh, that churches like this have opened, thrived, declined, and then shut. I mean, it's happened. All the churches in Revelation, gone. Not a single one of them are alive today. And by seeing life through that lens, I'm able to see that the problems, the challenges, the struggles, the difficulties of my life that we're facing today in our nation are old problems. <laughs> the problems the church is facing, has been, they've been, the church has been wrestling with the problems it's facing for millennia, millennia. And it's put in perspective, and so I, I don't have to be so upset by it that we are in exile. Maybe not the same kind of exile, but we are in exile today. And the exiles returned to their homes. They did, after 70 years. And so... I can just rest in that and have a sense of proportion about my life. I don't have to get so upset, right? Here's the second thing this teaches us, that Jesus happened. It gives us a sense of direction. Uh, As E.H. Carr once said about history, that history is a continuing conversation between present and past. And I like that because history history has constantly been rewritten because fresh material comes to light. Each new generation gets to ask new questions about their own past and in that way, theology, like history, this is, we're just doing theology this morning, is like that. It's a living conversation, one in which we're given new conversation partners. The genealogy is just a set of new conversation partners for you. Each of those people in there have stories in the Bible. Some of them are just no-name people you can't find. Most of them, you'll find their story, and I dare you. Read Tamar's story some night with your kids. Do it. Rahab. Read Rahab's story. Don't do the flannel graph. Do that. Read these stories. Read David and Bathsheba. Read, read that story and ask questions. Allow them to be your conversation partner. They'll give you new insights into what God's been up to since the beginning of time. And that'll give you a sense of direction because these stories and these people, they describe to us that, that Jesus lived in a certain time and a place in a country, like I've said before, he had a zip code. Like, that's going to give you a sense of direction, like a true north. He's going to say, hey, look, I walked a certain direction. I was obedient to the Father and you can be too. And you'll help you navigate in this day and age. So proportion and direction. And here's the last thing in this, this second point. That Jesus happened and infuses your life with a sense of hope. Um, and I think it's fair to say that one of the marks of our culture today is an absence of hope. 
like an absence of hope. There's this pessimism. I mean, I feel pessimistic some days. Um, and despair when you look at the politics and the state of our environment. And there's a good reason to lack hope. <laughs> and yet one of the marks of, of biblical Christianity, which I'm inviting us to stand in, okay, not evangelical Christianity, set that aside. Biblical Christianity is a, is a sort of countercultural confidence, a, a sort of hopefulness. As Paul writes in Romans 5, through Christ, we have confidently entered into a new relationship of grace. And here we take our stand in joyful certainty of the glorious things God has done in the future. There's that thing I was talking about. And then he says this in Romans 5. That doesn't mean that we only have a hope of future joy. Here's the, here's the punchline. We can be full of joy here and now, even in our trials and troubles. Taken in the right spirit, these things will give us patient endurance. They will turn us, they, they in turn will help us develop mature character. And that character will produce a steady hope. So by reflecting on the fact that Jesus happened will give you hope, confident hope, that you, you can take your stand in the midst of trials and just be there <laughs> with Christ because he walked through those same things and does too today. So God takes his time. God breaks into history. And here's the why. Here's what I was just trying to get to. Last thing I want to talk about. Number three, God smashes like all these superficial barriers that we erect. And this is the middle part of the genealogy. I, I think I listed verses three to six, but take almost any of the names in there. And so ancient times um, in societies like this one where this genealogy is written, it's important to know who's in your family tree. Uh, Elizabeth, my wife, her grandfather was an architect and so had this uh, did this family tree on this large piece of drafting paper and like actually wrote it out. And the reason I know this is because we were looking for a name for our daughter. We didn't know, uh, we were having a daughter, we were looking for boys' names and girls' names. This is like 13 years ago. And so her parents are, for, her mom's from Norway, and so her grandfather's Norwegian. A lot of like um, Sven and Oli's on there and Lena's. I'm kidding. <laughs> there were a lot of Elizabeths, that's where she gets her name from her family. We're looking back, and in the, was it 14th century or 17th century? I don't even know, but way back. I mean, this is how far back this genealogy went. Found this name, Marin. Asked one of her uncles about this name, because it stood out, because it wasn't Elizabeth. It wasn't Lena. It was just a different name. And this is an immigrant into, uh, into Elizabeth's family from Denmark, who'd married into the family. And I looked up what the name means. Mar from Latin for sea. It's also related to Mary. I was like, that's our daughter. And if you've met my, my daughter... That's her. And so it's important. I don't, I don't have a family tree like that. <laughs> I mean, I could tell you some stories, but I, don't, I lack an, a memory of my family. And uh, in the ancient world, it was really important to know who was in your family, like who your dad was, who your, who, your, who your brothers were. So you get these long lists, long, long lists, all Old Testament and in Matthew and Luke. It would be like the equivalent of a resume today. Like how many of you have had to write a resume recently because you're looking for work? Maybe don't raise your hand because... Your boss might be here, but um, like when you apply for a job, you put your resume together in order to tell your would-be employer something about yourself. It's not just your jobs. It's kind of a little bit about you and your background and your, your likes, your likes and what you, what, who they can expect to get if they hire you, your strengths, why they should hire you. You're making a case for that. So put that in context of Matthew 1. If you want to be looked to as a leader, you're, like, you're going to be the hero king that Israel expects. You're going to have a good resume, right? It's going to be like full of 
the, the big names, just the big names, like, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and they're in there because you want your genealogy to demonstrate your credentials. Like, you have street cred. I'm somebody. I descended from somebody. You should look to me as somebody and follow me, right? Look how uh, Matthew begins. I mean, he begins with some big names, but then he gets into some really surprising names. For example, right in the first few verses, he lists five women. Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, even though she's not named, and we'll get to this in a minute, and then Mary right down at the end. And why that's significant is because in that day, women weren't even considered fully human. They weren't full citizens. They were profoundly inferior. Women had no rights, no status, very little dignity as a result of that. And thus, when it came to your lineage, your genealogy, you didn't include women. And all that mattered who was your father and who were your brothers. And thus, I think by God including women in the genealogy of Jesus, it's like God saying this. It is actually unambiguously. I'm just going to say this. God is saying, I am proud of women. I'm proud of women in my family, in my church, as leaders. Women are fully human, fully reflect the image of God. And so Israel got it wrong. The church has gotten it wrong for generations. Women have worth. They deserve honor. They are filled with power. And so he's saying, look at my son's mother and his grandmothers. Without them and their courageous acts of faith, he wouldn't be. He wouldn't be. It's just the truth. So God includes women, just so you all know that. But that's not all. He also includes uh, Gentiles. These women, except for Mary, were all Gentiles, all descendants of Israel's enemies. So Tamar's a Canaanite, Rahab's a Jerichite, (laughs) Ruth's a Moabite, Bathsheba's a Hittite. And why that's significant is you all probably know that the Jews, especially like really religious Orthodox Jews, observant Jews, wanted nothing to do with Gentiles. Like the, the really, really religious ones went through great pains to avoid even walking on the same ground as Gentiles and touching the same things. This is the punchline of the story of the Good Samaritan as well as the story of the woman at the well. It's that Gentiles should not even be associated with. And that's why the Good Samaritan is so good. Because he associates himself with a Jew, which is precisely what God is doing, including Gentiles in Christ's line. Because Jesus will not only spend his life among Gentile people, like ministering to them, being ministered to them by, by them, calling some to be his followers, building community with others. He, he did that. And that's a radical thing to do for a first century Jewish rabbi. But also, he calls his church to do the same. Remember the story of Acts in Acts with Peter and Cornelius? Break down, smash the walls of division between Jew and Gentile. There's no unclean food, no unclean chairs, no unclean spaces, no unclean dirt. The laws of separation and segregation are being abolished here. And that the church practiced those things is horrific to me. The Gentiles are no longer inferior to Jews, slaves no longer inferior to free, black no longer inferior to white, women no longer inferior to men. And that's so important for us to consider as we begin this new year, because when I look at the world or when we look at the world, it is wrought with division. Like it is so divided politically, ethnically, culturally, we need, a, we need this word more now than ever to be a healing presence in the world. So that's the second thing. There's women and there's Gentiles, but here's the third thing. It's not just that there's women and there's Gentiles. There are some not-so-subtle allusions here to the brokenness and human frailty in, amongst, in, amongst the people of God, Jesus' family. Uh, and this is the thing that really amazes the scholars. So Tamar, I mentioned her earlier, 
If you read her story, you know this, there's incest. It's a horrifying story. There's, a, there's probably reasons we don't teach it in Sunday school. It's, it's horrifying, it's brokenness, it's shame, and she's part of the line of Christ. Rahab, we love to put her on a flannel graph. She's a sex worker. I'm just saying it. Um, Uriah's wife, interesting, her name's Bathsheba. Why doesn't Matthew put her name in there? Why does he go through the pains of saying Uriah's wife? Do you know why? It's actually a little Easter egg put in there by Matthew. It's a slam on David, and it's very significant. Uriah, uh, he's one of David's best friends back in, in, in 1 Samuel. And uh, when David's running from his life, for his life from Saul, remember this? Uh, he's, he's every minute just on the run, and a group of men are with him in the wilderness. And they're, they're putting their lives on the line for him. They're protecting him. These are called David's mighty men. Uriah is one of David's mighty men. They risk their lives for him. So you could just say, Uriah is one of David's best friends. And of course, we know the rest of the story. When David becomes king, he lusts after Uriah's wife while he's off on the battlefield. He covets her. He arranges to have Uriah killed, does so, and then takes Bathsheba as his wife. And from that union, if you want to call it that, comes Solomon, the author of the wisdom literature and the king. And if you know the story, it's not until a little bit later that David actually confesses his sin. He just lives with that for a while. And it's after that he becomes the man after God's own heart, not before. So Matthew has this audacity to call David, I mean King David, out. The guy whose throne Jesus is going to sit on. (laughs) The, The greatest king of all time. To call him out, include this colossal story of moral failure, this little hyperlink, just so you know, there is no perfect family this side of heaven. There isn't. And, uh, and the reason he does this, all these stories, is it doesn't matter who you are today. It doesn't matter what shape your family's in. It doesn't matter what you've done or failed to do. It doesn't matter where you've been, what you've seen. It just doesn't matter when it comes to Christ. All that matters are love and grace. That's it. Love and grace are free gifts from God. They're extended to everyone, regardless of your pedigree, your position, or your past. That's the truth. And it goes to everyone, and it must go to everyone. Um, And that's astonishing, because it permeates, and the reason I wanted to reflect on this today, is that love and grace permeate every word of the Bible. The first words dripping out of the pen of Matthew, the author of this gospel, and the first sentences of the New Testament are love and grace. Before a word of narrative, before Jesus appears, before his birth, the miracles, the healings, the teachings, the suffering, the cross, there's love and grace through incest and adultery and paganism and prostitution and murder and deceit and broken families and broken lives and shattered dreams, love and grace. It doesn't matter. And Jesus is, it's like Jesus saying, come to me, like Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy. There's a lot of weary, heavy people in this story. And he says, I'll give you rest. I, gave, I give them rest too. I'm proud I'm so proud of you, whoever you are, that, as Hebrews says, I'm honored, even, I'm not ashamed to call you my brother and sister. I'll never be ashamed of you. That's the story of the incarnation. And why it's so important to pause here before you start the story, that God includes the excluded. He, he heals families. He redeems personal failure. He reconciles relationships. I think if, if Uriah could have come back, they, he and David would have been reconciled. And because of that, I'm here to declare to you at the beginning of the new year 
Like, if you're any of these characters in this story right now, you're coming back from holidays. I know some of you, you've been with family. You're heading into a, a hard work year. Things aren't really how you want them to be financially. If there are any echoes of your story here, you just need to know that you're in God's story. You're in it. <laughs> There's a lot of failure here, a lot of broken dreams, a lot of shame. You have an honored place in God's family. It doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been, what's happening in your life. If it's blowing up, taking a left turn, coming to a screeching halt, God includes you in his story. And what's more, I want to finish with this. This also means that because these are the values of Jesus being articulated here, uh, he spends his life with these people. These are his family. Those values must permeate our church. Like the world values pedigree and money and success and power and moral conformity and those who have it together and can show that they've, they've been, become somebody, Jesus doesn't value that. <laughs> he values the unvaluable, the broken, uh, the lost. That's, he spends his time with those people. He values those people. And so he smashes through every petty and superficial value that we've erected, and he turns them upside down, and he says, uh, it matters not inside my church who you are, what you've done, where you've been. Those things out there don't matter in here. They cannot matter in here. They cannot be important in here. And so I want to invite us in this coming year to be thinking about the family tree of Jesus. Just looking around ourselves and asking ourselves, are those in his family in our church? Think about it. Those who would never darken the door of a church, are they here today? There are plenty of people in Lake City who would never darken the door of a church like this. They think you have to dress a certain way. I've tried to dress it down a little bit for you. I think you have to talk a certain way. You've got to look a certain way. You've got to smell a certain way. You've got to, all those things. Are there any people around you in your life that have never thought that they're inside, they could ever be inside God's story? They've screwed up too bad. People you work with. They've just blown it. Maybe that's you. <laughs> you're just checking it out. You're not sure. And if they're not here, if you're not even fully here, you got one foot in or a toe, Friends, I want to invite us. How can we posture ourselves in this coming year in a way that those that are part of the line of Christ would want, would desire to be part of the church of Christ? That's why we exist, to be a presence of Christ in this city. And so who are those people in his family that we could posture ourselves for? That's a question I just am excited about reflecting on with you this year. Um, as we continue to see to be this, this church for this place, not just for ourselves, but for this place that we're put, okay? Let's look at amazement, uh, at, the, at the story of Jesus, at the family of Jesus, um, who is the Christ, and, and let's just be amazed by who he includes, okay? This morning, um, we're going to celebrate, I'm going to invite the worship team back up, we're going to celebrate uh, communion, um, as is our habit on the first Sundays of the month. Um, maybe the invitation for us is um, maybe reflecting that question, man, how do I posture myself or how does our church posture ourselves? Um, let me bring it to you personally. Um, as you come to this and receive what is a representation of Christ's broken body and his shed blood, um, his life given for your life, um, so there's this sort of exchange, right? What are the things in your life that, you've, that you feel like disqualify you? Like you go, this thing in my life eliminates me 
from God's story. I just, I'm not really somebody who, I can, who can be looked to as a representation of Christ. Might you exchange that this morning and just know <laughs> that you belong. You don't, have to, you don't have to get that right anymore. You belong because Christ has lived and died for you. He wants to live through you, in fact. And so that's what this is all about. It's receiving more of Christ in your life. Um, you don't have to be a member of our church. You, you don't have to even been walking with Christ that long. Like, I think if this is your first walk toward Christ, great. Let this be. Our students are going to come back or your children are going to come back. And so um, they're invited to participate in this with you as an opportunity to learn faith. So there's a lot going on in this. Um, I'm just going to pray for the Spirit to, to work. Let's pray. God, we, uh, we come to you as Jesus invited us to in Matthew, uh, weary and heavy laden, in needing of rest from you. Um, it's hard to believe we're only six days into a new year, and yet many of us are tired, God, and many of us are um, feeling kind of broken down. And we have no idea, God, how we're going to get through the week, let alone another year. So we confess we need you. We come this morning confessing that. Thank you that you include us, God, in your story, that you included so many before us, many names we've never even heard, um, stories that if we, if we heard them today would shock us. Um, thank you that we can be part of that that story, unfolding story that you're writing in our, our lives, in our world. So as we come to the table this morning, God, we receive from you rest. We receive from you imagination about our own lives and how we're involved in what you're doing. Um, and we ask for renewal, God. Would you renew us? We pray in Christ's name. So there'll be 